Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Tom Slater, editor of Spiked, filling in for Fraser Myers this week. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Spike columnist and my favourite legal commentator, Luke Gissos. How are you doing, Luke? Thank you, Tom. Yeah, very well. And we're also delighted to be joined down the line by Spike columnist and my favourite expert on social cohesion, Rakib Asan. How are you doing, Rakib? I'm doing well, mate. Coming up on the show, the Manchester Arena Inquiry, the Illegal Migration Bill and the fate of Gary Lineker. So last week, we got the third and final instalment of the Manchester Arena Inquiry into that awful atrocity, that Islamist, Islamist bombing back in 2017 at the Manchester Arena. It's laid out a load of damning findings, particularly about the security service. It doesn't detail, but it points to failings things not acted upon, which could potentially, potentially have led to the attack being foiled in one way, shape or form. It also lays out various details of the radicalisation of the bomber, Salman Abedi and his brother Hashim Abedi, who aided him in that and is currently serving a life prison sentence for it. But Rakib, just to kick things off, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the, the findings in the report, some of the lessons that we're supposed to be learned? Because it was pretty damning, wasn't it? I think that the conclusions of the inquiry were devastating, uh, if truth be told, especially for the MI5. Uh, there was uh, much talk about missed opportunities, uh, which could have helped to prevent this uh, deadly terrorist attack taking place. As we know, part of the inquiry, uh, there were suggestions that political correctness and racial sensitivities could have fed into uh, security problems surrounding the Manchester Arena bombing. So all in all, I'd say that the inquiry, w w the findings were damning. And I'd also say more generally, it does tap into those wider conversations we have about uh, people f feeling fearful or being accused of being racist or Islamophobic uh, when it comes to matters of security, specifically Islamist extremism. And let's talk a little bit about some of those failings, because um, as we've kind of already alluded to, a lot of these details about what MI5 might or might not have known, it's not really laid out for obvious reasons or for reasons of national security, it's said. Um, but at the same time, the portrait that is drawn of Salman Abedi, his radicalization, his interaction with the authorities, does make you wonder how they missed this. So just to pick up on a couple of examples, we know that um, he was from a, a family of Islamists, effectively. His father, Ramadan Abadi, was involved in a Libyan Islamist group, why he was in the UK, incidentally, having claimed asylum. They highly suspect that both Salman and Hashem went back to Libya to fight in the civil war with jihadists. Um, he was in very close contact with a convicted ISIS recruiter who we both visited in prison and exchanged phone calls with. I mean, how... Does this, how does something like this slip through the net, Luke, do you think? Well, that is still unclear. A lot of the detail will be published in a subsequent closed report. So what we had in the inquiry was the open material that we can know about. Uh, the rest of it will be closed off uh, for perhaps good reason. Um, and I think they, they identified 22 opportunities. Uh, one of the most remarkable details being that um, Salman Abadi returned to the country just four days before the attack. And the judge found that there's some significant possibility that he was carrying the trigger that was used to detonate the device. Um, he also found that it's highly likely that Mr. Abadi received training to build the bomb whilst in Libya. Um, and 
one thing I think that will be pressing on the minds of the families and the public will be, how is it that this young man lived his entire life surrounded by Islamic radicals? Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned uh, the ISIS recruiter that he was communicating with in custody, sharing telephone calls with. He was also very close friends with a young teenager who went to fight in Syria. We know that he was um, in very frequent contact with radical influences throughout his entire life. So I think there will be legitimate questions asked about how this can happen and how he can stay off the radars uh, of MI5. Or even if, I mean, it is worth noting that he was on the radar for a significant period Mm -hmm. of time. And one, uh, unusually, one specific officer within MI5 was targeted for specific criticism for not writing up his concerns. Um, So there is a lot more to unpack about the specific failings within MI5. But I think the understandable uh, feeling at the end of this inquiry will be, well, is that it? Because I think it's very convenient to think of this as a series of MI5's failings, and it's important to recognise those failings. But what the inquiry can't do is answer those lingering political questions about um, how Salman Abedi uh, lived in a community that was so full of uh, radicalization, how uh, perhaps even UK foreign policy played into this discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the collapse of the Libyan state, the Libyan civil war was a key element um, to this process of radicalization. And the inquiry will never be able to engage in those questions. So, what we've got to do is now. Recognize that an inquiry can perform a specific role. It can identify specific failings and make recommendations about how to fix them. But we can't leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Because it's worth remembering we had a very similar inquiry into July 7, into the 7-7 bombings in London. Lots of recommendations, lots of failings within the intelligence service. And here we are yet again. So we have to move beyond the findings of this inquiry to engage in the political questions that form its background mm-hmm. Otherwise, we won't learn the lessons we need to learn. No, I think that's a really important point. You've got the kind of systems failure, but then you've got the like moral, political failure. Because you do get the sense that whilst things slip through the net, I'm sure there's also just a failure to take Islamism seriously. I mean, almost being quite relaxed that you have these individuals who hold these views and not necessarily thinking that in all instances they're going to act on them. I mean, I think even though this is a kind of separate cultural question, but even the way that we reacted to Manchester Arena, it was don't look back in anger. There was this refusal to recognise this for what it was, which was a political barbaric ideology, which had just slain 22 people, in large part young women, children as well. And you think if that can't help but feed through to a certain complacency on the on the part of officialdom as well. So it just feels top to bottom so much has gone wrong. But um, Rakib, there's been a lot of discussion recently about where counter-terrorism is going awry, where the state is going awry. Do you think there has been a case of kind of warped priorities. We speak, we've spoken in recent weeks on the podcast about the Shawcross Review and allegations that the, the, the authorities were being too preoccupied with things like far-right extremism. Do you think that plays into this or is, or is there a... What's, what's the sort of takeaway, do you think, for how we tackle terrorism in general, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I, I, firstly, I wouldn't be in the business of trivialising the far-right terror threat. A uh, number of voices in counterterrorism ha- has described mm. that particular threat as the fastest growing terror threat. I obviously have to make the point the fastest growing is very different to prevailing terror threat. The prevailing terror threat very much remains uh, as Islamist extremism. And that was uh, strongly reinforced in the short cross review in terms of the ideological composition of live counterterrorism policing investigations. It's also reflected in the terror-related 
prison population as well. I, I certainly think that when you look at the percentage of prevent referrals uh, and you look at the composition of those uh, live counterterrorism policing investigations, I do feel that in prevent there is a reluctance uh, to report suspected cases of Islamist radicalization compared to suspected cases of extreme right-wing radicalization. And I think, once again, that ta- that's related to what I talked about earlier, those accusations of being uh, labelled racist, Islamophobic, also being blamed for potentially undermining religious freedom. I think all of those dynamics come into play. Uh, and I think that Luke makes such a fantastic point about the Manchester Arena uh, terrorist attack. For some time, we've had this British-Libyan jihadi nexus, which has been allowed to fester in segregated parts of Manchester. There's barely been any action um, at local level or indeed national level to confront that. These are ultimately hotbeds of Islamist uh, activity, which have been allowed to fester. So, of course, we, we have those system failures um, associated with the Manchester Arena bombing. But I think we really need to delve deeper into the social and political origins mm-hmm. as to how we um, ha- ha- how we ultimately had a situation where 22 people were killed at a concert with the youngest victim being eight years of age. No, definitely. Luke, is there anything you want to add before we move on? Well, I think it's worth recognising that this is the conclusion of three stages of this report. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's worth actually reminding our listeners about the failings that were detailed in the first two reports. So the immediate aftermath uh, uh, of this incident, uh, the emergency service response is something that we often forget about, but the, the, the Manchester police failed to designate this a, a major incident, meaning that there was catastrophic communication failings, meaning that people were left dying on the floor because people weren't communicating mm-hmm. properly. Uh, that was uh, in addition to volume one, which looked at the inadequacies around the security arrangements, which uh, raised the issue around political correctness and so on. And this final report sort of completes the completes a real picture of, of failure. Um, but I think it's worth emphasizing that there's almost a sense in which the inquiry has become the safe space in which pe- the state can talk about Islamic extremism, mm-hmm. because it's removed from the rough and tumble of politics. It's a cold legalistic courtroom with the uh, with the appearance of objectivity but there is so much about this case which demands political consideration and political discussion and i think that there are other areas of public life where we think that the law can answer these important moral and political questions for us and i think that's a grave mistake no couldn't agree more so let's move on and talk about the other big story this week, or the big story in many respects, which is the government's new illegal migration bill. So this new piece of legislation is aimed at stopping the boats, as they've put it, um, essentially making it impossible for someone who arrives here illegally to claim asylum. They will be detained and sent to a, either to their home country or to a safe third country. And this is something which has quite naturally caused a lot of outrage, a lot of discussion, a lot of controversy. Luke, I always find myself in a position whenever these pieces of legislation come out where, on the one hand, I'm very concerned about many of these measures. I mean, many of them feel cruel, they feel draconian, talking about the detention, which is almost certainly going to result as a consequence of it because they haven't got these safe third country situations set up. Um, If you think about the fact that whilst everyone agrees you've got to stop people making these dangerous crossings, there there is still going to be a proportion of them who have what morally, if not legally, we'd recognise to be a, a legitimate claim to asylum. 
Um, there's also the kind of sense that this is a sort of blunt, a liberal instrument to make up for the fact that they haven't been able to control the borders. You have to resort to these kind of quite drastic tactics to hit your target in time for an election, which is, it feels like a quite grim way to deal with something which does involve real breathing human beings. All that being said, that's not really the discussion that we've been having. The discussion we've been having is, first of all, it's illegal and um, pearl clutching about the fact that this might, if not breach, then work around our human rights obligations as embodied in the ECHR and the Human Rights Act, or on the other end of the spectrum, you have the Gary Lineker response, who we'll come to in a second, let's not waste too much time on them here, but which is to say that we are on the road to fascism because the government is trying to deal with the, the question of illegal migration and asylum in this kind of way. What have you made of the discussion of this? Are you as irritated by it as I am? Absolutely. I think a lot of lawyers have abandoned their sense of judgment on this question. I mean, firstly, it's not illegal to make a piece of law which contradicts European, the European Convention on Human Rights. Parliament can make any law it likes. Mm -hmm. We are a sovereign nation. We're a sovereign parliament. Um, and the Human Rights Act anticipated, in fact, there's a mechanism within the Act that allows Parliament to indicate in advance that they're not going to comply with the European Convention. Um, so I don't quite know what people mean when they say this Act is illegal. It's just not. Um, Parliament can make the law, they pass the law, uh, and although it might be uh, in breach or in conflict with our international law obligations, that doesn't make it illegal. Mm. The law is what Parliament says it is. So that's the legal point. I mean, I think, unwittingly, human rights lawyers have become a mouthpiece for organised crime. <laughs> it just is true yeah. that um, uh, this problem affecting the channel is organised criminals taking advantage of incredibly vulnerable people charging them extortionate amounts of money to cross, the, to cross the channel in ways that will risk their life. That's a really serious problem and should be divorced, I think, from our discussion around asylum. Mm -hmm. We would do better with this question if it was removed from our wider discussion around how many asylum seekers we allow into the country. Because I think we need to be more generous with our asylum policy. We, can be, we should be more open to asylum seekers and make that process easier. But there is this specific problem involving organized criminality in the channel that has to be dealt with. So, look, I think I agree with you that the proposals are, are wrong. The idea that you would impose a lifetime ban on anyone applying for asylum again, I think is inhumane and gives over to blind bureaucracy, which I think is a, a mistake. And I do think the idea that we would detain people and then summarily deport them without any kind of fair hearing is wrong. But the, the human rights lawyers who are coming on to the airwaves to say that this is somehow abhorrent or appalling or evil, I think just aren't engaging with reality because I don't think there's anyone who sensibly believes that these organized criminal networks that are running these boats are acting through the goodness of their own heart or that they are at all interested in helping asylum seekers. The fact is that uh, uh, at least a very significant proportion of the people crossing in those boats are illegal economic migrants. And we have to face that reality because otherwise we can't do anything about this problem. Mm -hmm. If we're going to live in this dreamland where um, this is all about um, asylum, then I really think we need to grow up. So it's also worth noting just quickly that Suella Braverman said that this plan had a 50-50 chance of not working mm -hmm. because it would be stopped in the courts. And this mirrors the approach they've taken to this problem 
in the past. So when they set up the immigration partnership with Rwanda, they knew that they would be stopped from doing it eventually by the courts. So both sides of this discussion have used it as an instrument in the culture war. Both sides are using this problem. The lives of the people trying to get into this country are being used and deployed and exploited for the political objectives of both sides. And I think that's appalling. So Rakib, feel free to respond to anything that we've just been discussing there. But I suppose on that point initially, do you think that they're sincere is maybe the wrong word, but actually, do, they, do you think that they believe this is actually going to work? Or is this about just trying to do something to be seen to be doing something in time for the next election? For me personally, I think that the the new bill, illegal immigration bill, I think there's a risk it could be bogged down with significant legal challenges. And there is the possibility that the Conservatives uh, themselves know that it may well be unworkable, uh, that, that there is a possibility that the ECHR may intervene and say, this is what you're trying to introduce here is unlawful. And then perhaps in the build up to the next general election, uh, contest that on a platform of withdrawing from the ECHR. I think I think that that is a possible political uh, strategy here. I, I, I agree with Luke. I think some of the provisions in the legal migration bill I'm quite uncomfortable with. Uh, but at the same time, there is a old considered almost I'd describe it as an open borders brigade uh, in the UK. They're very good at criticising these kind of proposals, and there are criticisms to be made, but they don't provide any sensible alternatives of their own. I also agree, look, I do think that we should have a generous asylum system. I think the issue is currently we have a dysfunctional one, which is oversaturated and being overwhelmed uh, largely by um, young, able-bodied men who are being imported into the UK by people smuggling infrastructures. They are taking on physically demanding journeys, but they're also very costly journeys, which suggests that they have the resources in order to facilitate these journeys. When I think our asylum system should be prioritising those who are at immediate risk of violence and persecution, and those who are dispossessed. So I think overall we have a crisis in terms of our border security and how our asylum system works. But also when you dig into the numbers internally in terms of where asylum seekers are rehomed, that tends to be the poorer, more deprived parts of the country, such as Nosley, where we saw there was a flare-up um, outside the Suites Hotel, which was accommodating uh, asylum seekers. So I think we have an unfair internal dispersal system when it comes to asylum seekers being rehomed. Um, and in terms of our borders, I think the line between who is a genuine refugee and who is an economic migrant has become increasingly blurred over time. And there's been so much kind of insulting at people's intelligence as well. You know, I think it really came to a head with the Albania revelations that are at one point last year, what was it, a third or a quarter of the people who were coming across in the small boats crossings were from Albania, which by any standard is a safe country. Um, and then also, again, you get into these you get into these quite circular arguments, it feels like, because people say, well, they're fleeing war when obviously they're fleeing France. These the people don't like their intelligence being insulted by a debate that seems to only function on the level of virtue signaling most of the time. And you say, Racky, about people not having alternatives. I almost wonder if a lot of these people, kind of goes to your point, Luke, about you almost wonder whether the, the reason they don't is because they also don't necessarily see there's a problem. I mean, everyone knows that this is a bad system, but at the same time, there's a lack of willingness to open this question in any direction at all, it feels like. Yeah, and that ties into the point about the law. So you'll say, well, you can't possibly do anything that conflicts mm -hmm. with the Refugee Convention. Well, there is an argument of, to rip up the Refugee Convention. The Refugee Convention was drafted um, in the late 20th century at a time that is very different to now. 
And I think the idea that you would use the Refugee Convention to defend or protect the system of illegal crossings that we're seeing now is absolutely vile. You know, I, I heard a lawyer on the on the radio this morning saying, ah, well, there is a specific provision in the Refugee Convention that allows a, a migrant to enter by irregular means, a refugee to enter a new country by irregular means. There you go. They're defended under the Refugee Convention. So they actually use the Refugee Convention to defend this system of crossing, mm -hmm. which I think is grotesque. There is an argument that we need to look again at the Refugee Convention, certainly an argument we need to look again at the European Convention on Human Rights. We need to look again at what these, uh, how we offer protection to people in the 21st century, because arguably we can afford to be more generous, but the current system isn't working. No, exactly. And I think it's almost, in terms of improving this system, it's premised on gaining control over it and taking people's concerns seriously, because there seems to be a complete lack of that. I think in terms of making the case for a more liberal migration policy or more generous asylum policy, both of which I'd like to see, you cannot do that in a situation in which there is abject chaos and this issue is not really dealt with. No one is going to support that. And Rakib, I mean, do you feel as if this is this issue is at least firmly back on the agenda now? I mean, like people talk about it as if it's now the kind of only dividing line or potential dividing line between the Tories and Labour, who have become quite similar under the leaderships of Sunak and Starmer. It's being talked up as this is going to be the dividing lines, the battle lines going into the next election. Do you see that being where we're going? I think that's a real possibility. Uh, I saw a headline earlier today which read Labour opposes illegal migration bill. And I think to the sort of everyday normie, I think that's exactly the kind of headline that the Conservative government is looking for, uh, if truth be told. As I said, I think that there are that there are a variety of problems uh, with the bill. But I, I do see that this is ultimately a political strategy for the Conservatives to differentiate themselves from the from the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats as well. But I do also think this is the kind of issue that could cause significant divisions within the Conservative Party as well. I think if the Conservatives were to entertain the possibility of leaving the ECHR, I think that more liberal-minded Tories in the so-called Blue Wall, I don't think that would go down particularly well. Now, of course, in terms of its core rank-and-file base, they will want any kind of measure in terms of shoring up our border security, um, even if that means the UK leaving uh, the ECHR. But I think the kind of voters that Sunak is beginning to win over, perhaps, uh, liberal-minded Tories in southern England, who may have thought he did quite well in terms of this new Northern Ireland deal, I, I think that the, the optics of the UK potentially leaving the ACHR over this uh, following in Russia's footsteps with the Ukraine conflict in the background, I think it could cause serious internal problems for the Conservative Party as well. I think just just finally on on that particular question, because um, I completely understand what you're saying, what you're saying there, Rakib. I suppose my thing with the the pearl clutching that we've seen around the ECHR question, I have found a bit strange in recent days. Not least because of the fact that a lot of the people who are saying that if we were to do anything which would work around our international human rights obligations as it, as it relates to refugees, is setting us on a sliding scale towards fascism or, so, or whatever. You do wonder, these are the same people who absolutely love, say, the European Union, which for many years has been pursuing a migration policy which makes Suella Braverman's one pale into insignificance. If you think about the money that was being thrown at effectively North African dictatorships to keep people from getting towards the Mediterranean, very strong reports of torture in detention camps and so on, this really grubby business, which the ECHR or the UNHCR, or any of these um, laws or bodies or organisations did precious little to highlight, let alone actually stop from happening. 
I mean, just it, Luke, is leaving the the ECHR is not the terrifying kind of third rail it's being presented as, really, is it? No. Um, the, the, the vision of the ECHR that is often presented in our public discussion is very different to what it actually does. And you'll find that if you review the case law, the authorities that are handed down by the, Euro- by the European Court of Human Rights, they do tend to be quite hands-off with how they intervene um, in national governments. National governments remain quite free under a doctrine known as the um, margin of, uh, of appreciation to make laws that fit with their own societies. So it's not a court which is hugely interventionist. It can be at very key moments. And when it is, for example, with regards to the Tory policy we discussed earlier, when it does make its interventions, they can be very impactful. But nonetheless, the idea that leaving it would render us vulnerable to tyranny is a complete misrepresentation. In fact, we could do a lot better through domestic law, through our own legislature, to create the kind of liberal, open-minded asylum policy, immigration policy that you want to see. Um, Outside of the European Convention on Human Rights, there is nothing involved in leaving that convention which hamstrings us into creating more draconian law, if anything, it creates the opportunity to put these questions back on the table for political discussion and make laws uh, that we want, the, the, the kind of laws that give us a more free and open society. Definitely. And now, related to this, let's move on to the, the final topic of the podcast, bit of light relief, um, although it's a very strange story, and that is Gary Lineker and his response to events which we've already gestured to. So Gary Lineker, as many people know, the top BBC football pundit, also a prolific virtue signaller on all questions of the Tories, of Brexit, and now, of course, of immigration as well. So when the illegal migration bill surfaced, he took to Twitter, as he is wont to do, and in discussion with someone else, essentially heavily implied that the policy that is being pursued and the language being used to argue for it is reminiscent of the Nazis. I mean, he referred to Germany in the 30s, but I don't think he was talking about, you know, the latter days of the Weimar Republic. Um, it's quite obvious what he was talking about. So obviously the, the reason this has become such a hot button issue is not because Gary Lineker has said something virtually signally, that happens every day. It's because of the question of BBC impartiality. Um, he's technically a freelancer in what he does, but at the same time, he has previously been brought in for a word with BBC management about his particularly anti-Tory tweets. It's a bit of a kind of sore spot for BBC management. And it's turned into somehow the biggest story in the country in recent days. You know, reporters camped outside of his home asking for a quote as he gets into the car to go to work. So, Rakib, it's become a bit of a circus, but what do you make of all of it? Well, I I think that it just shows that there's a tendency among certain type of celebrity to compare or rather strike parallels between something that they don't like with Nazi Germany. Uh, we saw much of this with with Brexit as well. Um, also, we had some people comparing the European research group in the Conservative Party mm. with Nazi Germany and apartheid South Africa. David Lammy, we should uh, never uh, let him forget that. Yeah, David, exactly, David Lammy. So I, I think that, as I said, there are there are many legitimate criticisms to be made of the illegal uh, illegal migration bill uh, without comparing the without striking parallels between the Conservative parties immigration and asylum policy to that of Nazi Germany, uh, which is ultimately responsible for the Holocaust and the attempted extermination, um, wholesale uh, extermination of Jewish people. So I I think that it really uh, weakens the quality of our discourse. And I have to say, the likes of Gary Lineker, you know, incredibly uh, super wealthy celebrity, uh, the, the, the small boats crisis, it presents an opportunity for them to virtue signal 
uh, in public uh, whilst being insulated from the potential fallout of it. I, I made the point, actually, Tom, that the combination of our border security crisis and cost of living crisis, uh, that could really undermine social trust in a way that poses a threat to the welfare state. Now, obviously, the likes of Gary Lineker are not particularly reliant uh, on the welfare state. So I think a lot of this, this is luxury. This is luxury progressive politics among those who are very much insulated from the impacts of the uh, crisis of the day. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you made the point about how shameful these comments are as well because anything Gary Lineker related it's easy to sort of raise a bit of an eyebrow or a wry smile but this tick that people have which is to compare everything to Nazi Germany to compare just anything right of centre it feels like now to Nazi Germany is not only wrong and demonising people and not good for public discussion it's really grotesque (laughs) insofar as you are relativising the Holocaust you're turning it to just like a bad authoritarian thing that happened in history rather than the great crime of the 20th century Um, and you're just effectively you know, dining out, exploiting one of the most horrendous things in, in history in order to just land cheap political points. So it is worth clocking that. But um, Luke, what have you made of this whole situation? You know, how do you, how do you think it's going to pan out? Well, I, I saw it. It was interesting today that this became a free speech issue. Mm. And people Among saying... People oh, who never cared about free speech. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People who never cared about free speech before suddenly saying, ah, well, here you go. This is just Gary Lineker exercising his free speech. Of course, Gary Lineker should be able to exercise mm. his free speech and say, um, to an extent, whatever he likes. Uh, However, he can't be shielded from the consequences of that. When you argue for free speech, you don't argue for speaking without consequence or speaking without repercussion. And we've always said on Spike that when you, part of the back and forth of free speech is being held accountable for what you say uh, and being held accountable in a robust way. Now, what Gary Lenneker said was stupid. And he's one of our nation's most popular broadcasters, it's right that he's taken to task in a very public way on what he said. Uh, I think he should have been allowed to say it. He should have been allowed to tweet it. I don't think he's going to be sacked anytime soon. But there is another dimension to this, which is um, there is some reporting suggesting that quite a lot of the uh, lesser popular presenters at the BBC Mm -hmm. and staff at the BBC are a little bit annoyed that he gets away with what he does because he's so uh, influential, so popular, such a mainstay that he really should kind of practice the impartiality that that, that the BBC preaches. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, he's a contractor. So the BBC are are free to ditch him if they wanted to. Of course, they're not going to because he remains enormously popular. But I think um, Mr. Lineker should probably exercise some recognition that he is part of a state broadcaster. Mm -hmm. And part of having a state broadcaster is abiding by certain rules. That's not necessarily a free speech issue. It's just recognizing that when you're part of a state organization, you have a responsibility to use that position responsibly. Mm-hmm. And this this comment wasn't just wrong. It was crass, as you suggest. It was completely um, it was completely out of line with with what we might call reasonable public discussion. So yes, allow him to say it. But I think Gary Lineker specifically is a is a relatively unique case. And if he um if he wants to carry the respect of his colleagues at the BBC, he should probably think a bit more before he tweets. Mm-hmm. And I, I should say I don't you know I don't want it to be sacked, I don't want it to be cancelled or anything like this. I think it was also worth a fair point. I think you can expect people to separate their what they do at work and what they tweet on the internet. I mean, you know, Andrew Neil was at the BBC for many years, again, as a contractor, he would make his opinions known in other ways, but he was trusted as a broadcaster. I think, it, the, I guess the problem in Lineker's case is that particularly with some of that World Cup coverage and so on, you start to see the politics start to creep in, in a way that, um, again, comp- 
complicates things a little bit. But it has, it, you're right, Luke, it has been fascinating, the kind of sense of double standards. And also, basically, if you're big enough at the BBC, you can get away with this. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're not, that doesn't seem to be a, a pretty healthy way of, of doing this. But um, what do you think, Rack? I mean, by the time people hear this, he might have um, stormed out. He might have um, got a very lucrative deal elsewhere. But how do you see this playing out? Or do you reckon it's all going to fizzle out at this point now that it seems like things are calming down a little bit. Well, I, I certainly don't want him to be fired. And I think he's entitled to express his view. But the, the, the point that Luke makes is a very important one. He, he's a high-profile figure who is associated with our national public broadcaster. Uh, and that entails uh, making political statements which are somewhat responsible. And I think that's where he has crossed the line. Uh, reading the illegal migration bill... There isn't a provision in there that calls for the eradication of an entire ethno-religious group. Important point. So, to point. <laughs> so, so just fact-checking so, Gary so, Lineker so, there. That's the uh... so so trying to strike parallels between that. And as I said, it, there's many criticisms that that can be made uh, when it comes to the Conservative government's public policy in a range of areas. The the issue is that what he said, I think, crossed the line. It was grossly irresponsible. I would go as far as saying that it's grotesque. Um, and, I, and I think that considering he is so closely associated with our national public broadcaster, um, you know, spearheading essentially one of its most popular longstanding programmes in Match of the Day, mm-hmm. I do think that he has certain duties and responsibilities to make political statements, which may take a particular side, but there has to be a degree of responsibility and it needs to be made in a somewhat measured way. And I, I do worry that he becomes just the sort of tip of the iceberg. It's like Gary Lineker sounds off on Twitter, that's the big problem. Whereas, as we all know, the problems at the BBC in terms of bias got a lot deeper than one sports presenter who happens to have a lot of high-status opinions. And a nice reminder, though, with Gary Lineker that a lot of high-status opinions are really dumb. Which is <laughs> useful. But thank you both very much. Luke, Rakib, thanks for your time. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday, and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.